Our scripture comes from Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect to those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin Sorry. every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Appreciate uh, everyone's flexibility and patience with us as uh, obviously we're in the middle of uh, some proj- process and uh, growth. So uh, it's, it's actually kind of fun being up here and being, being a little closer uh, to everyone. Uh, sort of, and with the spotlights, I sort of feel like I'm, I'm kind of like a Vegas stage or something. It's like showtime, don't forget to tip your waitress. And uh, I, I want to share something with you all as we uh, start our time together in God's Word this morning. This is a picture of my wife, Amelia. Um, It's one of my favorite pictures of her, and uh, I think we can all agree that uh, I did pretty well for myself. Uh, And I am well aware that something mysterious and miraculous happened when a woman like this would agree to marry me, uh, for a number of reasons, uh, because she is very beautiful, and uh, I am not. Uh, and in fact, uh, one kind person pointed out to me after first service, like, hey, that's the first time I've seen the top of your head when you bent over to pray. I'm like, yeah, that's what I got going on up there. Uh, so it just highlights the distinction between the two of us for everyone. One of the reasons this is one of my favorite pictures of Amelia is this is kind of what she looked like when I met her, really, when, when we met in college. Uh, this uh, beautiful brunette and uh, the curly hair. And uh, so, I, I mean, I like her hair straight and it's been different lengths and, uh, you know, sometimes different colors as it may be sometimes for women. But this is what it looked like when I met her and when I fell in love with her, when I really started to get to know her and, and appreciate her. And I, I love this picture for that. It sits on my dresser and as you can, maybe you can see there's even a crack on the frame. It fell over one time. I glued it back together because it, it matters that much to me. I see it every morning as I start my day and I get dressed. And it's a reminder of this person that I have in my life. Uh, I have a little version of this that I've scanned off and it's in my phone. So, you know, I can take it with me wherever I go and because I love this picture, because I love her. And, and yet there's something that is not all there about this picture, right? I mean, because it's just a picture. Uh, For example, a picture can't cook a really good meal. And Amelia is a really, really good cook. Uh, We had some friends over recently, and uh, Amelia went to great lengths to uh, select all the ingredients, prepare the menu, and uh, not just one, not just two, but three different amazing soups that she made for a cold winter night. This uh, creamy wild rice and turkey soup that was, oh, just filled you so satisfyingly. And this uh, delicious, savory uh, white bean and kale Tuscan soup. 
and then one that I would never even think you could make soup out of, uh, a soup with carrots and curry and cumin. And, uh, but Amelia takes all this and purees it with a little bit of lime sauce, uh, lime juice, and it's just, it's delicious. And uh, how anyone could take all those things and turn them into something so amazing is beyond me. And of course, we had this wonderful salad that went with it and fruit, and then this unbelievable brown molasses bread that, oh my gosh, when you smell it, it baking in the oven, and, and you can just envision, you know, the warm pat of butter melting on top of it, and it just, it smells like heaven, and it, it tastes like heaven. I've got some orders over on this side. And then, of course, we had dessert, three different desserts, with the option of two different kinds of ice cream. I'm sorry, this is really terrible. I'm making myself hungry. I'm making you guys hungry. I can hear your stomachs growling right now. You know, as much as I love this picture of Amelia, it cannot love me in the way that Amelia can. It can't produce a meal like that. It can't encourage me and hug me when I'm down. It doesn't confront me when I'm being an idiot, as I often am because I can be really stupid and sinful and selfish. You know, I can take this picture with me when I travel, but it's not very comfortable to cuddle up with at night, you know, when it's not actually Amelia. Amelia herself is the one who can actually love me and challenge me. I'm not saying I like it, but I need it. And the picture never does those things because that's what it is. It's just a picture. It's a representation of her. And I've made no vows to this photo. I I owe it nothing. I don't need to spend time with it. There's no promises between it and me. There's not a, a relationship really that exists between me and this photo. If I lost the photo, I would be sad, but I've got a digital copy of it and, and I could reproduce it. And so it's a beautiful representation of who my wife is. But it's not her. It's just a shadow. It's just an image of her. Some of my wife's beauty is seen here, but the real beauty of who she is and everything that she is in our relationship and our connection and all the years that we've had together, the physical side of her beauty, of course, is nice, and I'm thankful for that. But the way that she loves our family, the way that she uses her gifts to try to bring the presence of Christ into her work, the way that she serves in ministry here in the church and out in the world, the the way that she holds us accountable, the way that she challenges and encourages me, the way that she comforts me and supports me, those are things that this picture cannot do. You can kind of catch a shadow of it, but it's not the reality. And if you've got your Bibles open, we're in this passage in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, we've been in this series in Hebrews called Greater, where we've been seeing how Jesus is greater, greater than the prophets, greater than the apostles, greater than angels, a greater messenger, a greater leader, a greater priest, a greater sacrifice. And we've been in this section in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, where the writer 
has been talking about all these things in the past were symbols, they were images, they were pointers, they were shadows of something good, but they weren't the thing itself. They can show us what is good, they can show us what we need and what we ought to be, but they aren't those things. They only give us kind of a limited hope. They only give us a picture. But now, the writer says, we come to the reality, the substance of the good things that the law and the sacrifices and all of it were only pointing towards. Let's jump into Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, not the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, we've talked a lot about all the connection and, and the images that the writer of Hebrews is bringing out of God's work with his people in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. And the background, of course, is God calls Abraham uh, out of one country and says, come and follow me, be an immigrant, be a wanderer, and I will settle you, I will be your God, and I will multiply your offspring, and they will be a blessing to the world. And those offspring end up as slaves in Egypt, and God rise, raises up a deliverer, Moses, to bring them out. And then after leading out his people, after saving and delivering them, he brings them to this mountain where God is going to give his law, his direction for their lives. And the summary of that is what we call the, the Ten Commandments. That's, you know, just sort of morality and ethics 101, right? There's nothing really complex about the Ten Commandments. We can all understand them. And hardly anyone would argue with them, right? I mean, you're not going to meet very many people that will just openly say, I think anything that I want, I should just be able to take from anyone anytime. I mean, we're all going to pretty much agree that theft is wrong. And if you find someone that doesn't agree with that, don't invite them over and, and don't hire them, okay? You're not going to find very many people that will say, yeah, I mean, I have this person that I'm married to, but I really want to invest my heart and my life and my soul in as many people as possible at a, at a deep, intimate level. No, we're going to say it's not healthy and it's not right. We marry and we invest ourselves in that person that we've made a covenant commitment with. We all agree to those things generally, that they're not hard to understand. The problem is we don't do them. And we can't do them. And those Ten Commandments are really just the summary of all of God's will and direction for His people, right? I mean, you know that there's hundreds of those laws that go on, not, not to burden us, but they're meant to be a picture of the good that God intends for His people in family and in community and in economics and in business and in relationships and in government and in justice and caring for the environment. The Ten Commandments are just the survey course, right? Ethics 101, and, and God says, here's my intent for you, what you ought to look like as my people, but I know that you're not going to be able to do that, and yet I'm also a holy God, and we all have this sense of justice inside of us that cries out for wrong, something has to be done with it, and so God says, I am holy, and I am just, and, and I can't let sin go unpunished, but I love you, I saved you. And so God institutes this tabernacle and the sacrificial system as the way of dealing with our failure to live up to what God's called us to be. 
Maybe you guys have the, the image you can call up in your mind, that picture of Charlton Heston, right, in the robe and the, the big beard, and he's got the stone tablets, and he comes down off of the mountain with God's laws, right? And what are the people doing? They're immediately breaking the law. They're worshiping a golden calf. And, and so Moses, in anger, smashes the commandments on the ground because the people can't and won't obey God. And God says, okay, we have to deal with that. So you go to the priest, you tell the priest, I sinned. And the priest says, yes, you've sinned. Don't do that anymore. Which is great advice, except that doesn't help us, right? So instead of you paying the penalty, though, God has made it possible for a substitute to be offered in your place, a a bull or a goat or doves if you're poor. We sacrifice that animal and its blood will stand in for you. It will give its life as a substitute for you. But the problem, according to Hebrews 10, is it didn't work. At least not the way the the people thought or hoped or wanted. It could not make perfect those who draw near. The law and the sacrifices were just a shadow. They were a picture of what God intended for his people. They could not set the people free because that's what the writer, you see, goes on to say. They have to, year after year, keep offering these sacrifices. And they did the same religious rituals and went through the same motions that produced the same dead-end results. Can anyone here relate to that, I wonder? The law, by the same sacrifices, can never make perfect those who draw near. That make perfect there is interesting. It's this Greek word teleo, which is a telos, an end, a goal, a desired outcome. The law, the sacrifices, even the good that God gave us cannot make us into the people that we ought to be. It cannot change us. It cannot free us. It cannot save us. The law, the sacrifices, show us what we ought to be and point out that we're not that, and so they condemn us and remind us of our sin. That's what the writer goes on to point out in verse 2. I mean, if it, if it could perfect us, if it could save us and free us, wouldn't those offerings cease to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin, would no longer have an awareness of sin. If they'd been cleansed, they wouldn't have to keep coming back to get cleansed again. They wouldn't have guilty consciences anymore. But they knew it wasn't done. They knew that the guilt was still hanging over them, and so they carried around with them this feeling of not really being forgiven and not really knowing where I stand with God. Maybe some people here can relate to that too. That reminder of sins every year was was like the sword of God's judgment hanging over their heads. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the sword would fall on that goat, and it was covered for the year, but you knew you were going to have to go back the next year. And, And you knew that sin was still a problem in your life. You keep coming in, you keep confessing your stuff to the priest, the priests tell you to do what's right, you kill the animals, and, and yet you keep coming back. Anyone ever had the flu 
like a, a really week long, laid out flat on the bed, viral infection. Like you're, you're achy and miserable and tired. You have no energy. Food doesn't taste very good. You know, all you feel up to is just like coughing and moaning. And you can take all the Sudafed that you want. You can take NyQuil. You can rub Vicks VapoRub on your chest like my grandmother used to do with me. None of it's going to help. I mean, it treats the symptoms, but none of it actually heals the disease. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews is getting at here. All the law, all the good things that God had pointed out for us in his law, they couldn't actually make us be those kind of people. They couldn't heal us. You know what health looks like. You want to be healthy, but the medicine can't heal you. You've got to get rid of the virus. And that was why the sacrificial system was a failure. Because if it had finally worked in our hearts, if we finally were free and forgiven and alive, we'd walk away and we'd never have to go back and sacrifice the animal again. Because here's what the author is getting at. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, there's something really interesting going on here if you think about it, because God commanded the people to offer those bulls and goats for their sins. Hey, I want you to sacrifice these animals for your sins, but God is also saying, but they don't really remove the sin. Because all of it, the law, the commandments, the sacrificial system, they're only a picture they're only a shadow. They're only pointing towards what I intend for you. Did you hear that back in verse 1? We didn't talk about that. The law has only a shadow of the good things to come. Good things that God intends for us. Like a signpost pointing in a direction or like an outline of a painting that has to become, the painter has to come back and fill in the colors so, so that you can actually see it. Any of you ever watch Bob Ross? Like the joy of painting? Yeah, right? Like, do you ever sit there and look at like, what in the world is he doing? I have no idea how he's going to turn this into a beautiful landscape. And yet he does every time. Sometimes it's hard to make sense out of the outline. And that law, the sacrificial system was only the outline of the good things to come. And that's meant to point us back to what we just heard a couple of verses ago in verse 28. Christ came and was offered once to bear the sins of his people, and he will come a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He will come a second time to bring about everything, every good thing, that God has intended for his people. It's not just about the taking away of the penalty of sin. You see, the good things that Jesus has come to bring about are so much bigger. It's about everything. It's about us as people. It's about redeeming relationships and economics and justice and our care for the environment and uh, how we relate to other people. God's purpose in sending Jesus is to make us into the people that he intended humans to be in the first place before we messed everything up. 
the good things to come that Jesus brings are, are about not just forgiveness of sins, which is awesome, but about wholeness and life and joy and beauty and flourishing and rightness and righteousness and the healing of people and institutions and relationships and even the creation. There's a, the promise, the shadow of all of that in the Old Testament. If you go back and read through the law, it's not this burdensome weight that God wants to put on us. He's saying, this is the life that I want you to experience that, that will bring you into every good thing that I created you for. That we would become the people who want what God wants for us and the kind of people who do those kinds of things, but the law can never produce in us. I've been reading this uh, really interesting book by a university professor called Jonathan Haidt. He's not, not a Christian. In fact, he uh, probably would describe himself as a liberal, secular atheist. It's called The Righteous Mind. And in it, he's, he's kind of exploring the foundations for why we have morals and where they come from, and then also why we value things differently morally as people. I mean, we all care about things like fairness, and justice, and care, and protection for the vulnerable. And yet, there's this distinction within us as humans that we prioritize those things differently or we express them differently. And this, the subtitle is, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And one of the things that Haidt is arguing in this book from a lot of social science research is, it's not that there are moral people and immoral people, it's that, I mean, obviously there are some people that are just, you know, have no sense of morality, but for most of us, it's that we're simply measuring morality in different ways. And one of the examples that he gives is fascinating this book, you know, that, about the, the morality of fairness. We all care that taxes are fair, but what does that mean? And, and he has an example of two different signs at the same protest movement. Tax the wealthy fair and square. There's an injustice that's happening, some people say, in our system when 1% of the people have 80% of the wealth and everyone else is getting left behind. And our system is not fair. And the other sign there says, spread my work ethic, not my wealth. Everyone's interested in fairness. And as Christians, part of what's fascinating for me in this book that hate brings out is I look at, at this social science research and I can see why Christians don't easily fall into one political camp or another. Because all the morality that's spread across humanity is a reflection of us being made in God's image. And all of it is encompassed in the gospel in some way or another. Yes, we should work hard and provide for our families. Yes, we should also have compassion for the poor. And yes, we should also have empathy for people who haven't had the same advantages that we have had. We care about loyalty and, and protecting people who are in our group, and we admire those who sacrifice to protect us. But we also care about the good and the flourishing of people who aren't in our group, because we know as Christians that we're not in God's group naturally. We're in the out group, and God has brought us in, and so now we care about people who aren't in the in group, because we know we don't belong naturally. It's 
it's, it's fascinating because part of what this brings out too is that the law, for example, can tell us what we ought to do, but it cannot produce those things. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is getting at. The law can picture compassion and it can punish brutality. The law even provided for a way for cruelty and oppression to be forgiven, but the law cannot make us actually love people. And that's why it's only a shadow of the good that God intends in us. See, the people would see that animal sacrificed every year, and and as the writer is saying, it was a reminder, a reminder again of sin, of the consciousness of their sin. And so they were constantly aware of how they were failing and how they couldn't be the people that God called them to be. Their sins were covered, but they had to keep coming back again and again and again. Do you see the greater hope that God has given us in Christ? The law says, sacrifice this animal. This is the blood of the covenant. Jesus says, holding out the bread and the cup, eat this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of me. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is done. We don't offer Jesus over and over again because his work is finished. Instead of remembering, you see, the guilt and the shame of our sins, the punishment that we deserve now, When we look at our sins, we see instead how Christ has taken them away forever. Because the blood of bulls and goats could only picture that. It couldn't do it. Now Jesus has put them in the bottom of an ocean, never to be remembered again. See, we are forgiven because of what Christ has done. When we confess, for example... We're claiming and appropriating the forgiveness of Christ because those sins have been forgiven if I am in Christ by faith. Over the last year, at the same time, you've noticed we've probably been more intentional in our worship to include elements of confession and words of assurance. Why do we do that? Why would we do that if our sins are already taken away in Christ? Because it's a reminder that Jesus has finished it. It's a reminder that I'm not in trouble if I live or if I die with unconfessed sin. Because I am in Christ and he's taken it already. Confession is not a sacrament in that sense. It's not releasing God's forgiveness. It's not saying, okay, well, you were unforgiven when you came in and now you're forgiven. It's saying you need to know you are forgiven because of what Christ has done. And now we bring that sin into the light where we can find healing and freedom from it. The the, the prayer is not releasing God's forgiveness. It's not like we have to re-crucify Jesus again. He's taken it away. So now we confess to acknowledge the barriers that I have put to God's work in my life and the attitudes and actions that don't align with who I am. Confession is saying, I was wrong. I don't want to be this way. Help me. There's a a phrase that, 
there's certain phrases that none of us really like hearing, right? And I think maybe for many of us, whether it's when we were kids or, or maybe even now as adults, is there something you need to tell me? If you get called into your manager's office and he asks you or she asks you, is there something you need to tell me? That's probably not going to be a good conversation. If your parents come to you as a child and say, is there something you need to tell me? It's probably not because you got straight A's and didn't tell them, right? That's not how it works. When you're sitting in grade school, the last thing you want to hear over the loudspeaker is, Jeff Schultz, will you please come to the principal's office? Like, that is not a good thing, right? Because we're going to be confronted with authority and law and what we've done wrong. And my sin, my failure is going to be exposed. You get that sinking feeling in your gut and your insides knot up. Maybe you start to sweat. Your heart starts to beat a little faster. We live pretty close to uh, the high school that Isabel attends. And so she will usually ride her bike uh, in the mornings. But when it's uh, freezing rain and 25 degrees out, uh, like it was last week, I will drive her to school. I know I'm breaking all the uh, grown-up parent rules. It's like a betrayal, right? Because when we were kids, we walked two miles to school, uphill both ways, in the wind, with a uh, you know, knee-high snow, and we liked it because it built character. Maybe not. Uh, I will break down and take my daughter to school because I don't want her to you know, end up encased in ice and uncovered by some archaeologist you know, hundreds of years from now trying to recreate 21st century society. So I drive her to school, but there's not a very convenient way to drop the kids off. I mean, they have a way to drop the kids off, but it just doesn't suit my plans because it takes longer to circle all the way around the line and drop her off at the door where I'm supposed to and then circle back and have to go through the light. And so what I usually do is, as all these cars are waiting in the line and, and then there's an occasional stop and so the kids, other kids coming across the street can get waved through, that's the signal to, you know, like quick jump out and, and she can run in close to the front entrance, right? And I did that last week and there were no other cars coming and I dropped Isabel off and so I just made a U-turn right there in the street to head back home. And then I got waved over by the friendly police officer who was standing 20 feet behind me and saw me pull a U-turn and wanted to know, do you want to explain why you made a U-turn across a double yellow line? In front of the school? <sighs> well, nobody was coming, so I thought it was okay. And I, and I did look. There actually wasn't any other cars coming. And, and I, I've seen other people do it. I didn't think I was endangering anyone. And when I'm confronted with the law, you see, my natural tendency is to defend myself, to explain why I had a good reason for what I did, to diminish the wrong, to compare my performance to others. Or sometimes, you know, maybe I'll just, I can wallow in self-hatred over it, right? Like, it's so stupid. Why did I do that? And now I've got to explain myself to the police officer. Why can't I get it right? When I come to tell Jesus in his grace what I have done, it does something completely different, you see. It frees me from the power that that sin has on me. Because for one thing, sin thrives in the dark. Sin thrives in secrecy. 
And bringing it out into the open helps break the power that it has in my life. It frees me from the guilt and the shame of it because if I'm bringing it to Jesus, it's already been taken away. And and now I can safely talk to him about what I've done. It, It brings me closer to God because God is truth and he lives in the light. And as I walk in the light and I'm honest with him, I'm getting closer to where he is. And then it positions me to grow more like Christ. Because I'm never going to grow to be more like Jesus, more like the people God intends me to be by pretending about what I'm doing and being dishonest with God and myself. Now, confessing to the policeman may be the right, sorry, Jonathan, confessing to the policeman is the right thing to do. It's probably the right thing to do. Consult your lawyer first. I'm not an attorney. But it's not going to make me love the law. And it's not going to help me obey it. And it's not going to make me love the policeman, probably. Except Jonathan, of course. But confessing my sin to God through Christ, you see, now is totally different. Now it's freeing. Because the law cannot take my sin away. Like Jesus can. All the law can do is tell me what I ought to do and condemn me for not doing it. But Jesus has taken it away. It's not just covered, it's gone. I am no longer defined by sin. I'm no longer controlled by that sin. The Apostle Paul writes these amazingly hopeful, profound words in Romans 6. Sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but grace. Sin shall not have dominion over you. It shall not have power over you. The policeman can cite the law. He can enforce the law. He can punish wrongdoers. He can defend the innocent. He can guide us in the way that he should go. But he cannot say, sin shall not be your master. And the law is only a symbol, a policeman pointing us to the good that God wants to do, intends to do for us in Christ. Because we are now alive in Christ through God's grace. We're not under the law. Jesus comes to live in us by his spirit so that he can now say, sin shall not be your master. Because you are under grace, not under law. What greater hope do you see that Jesus brings? Hope that I could actually be different. Hope that that doesn't have to define me and control me anymore. Confession is about acknowledging my guilt, yes, but acknowledging how much greater is God's love and forgiveness and how Jesus has already taken it for me. Confession is about making us feel guilty. I am guilty. Confession is about acknowledging my guilt and how Jesus has paid for it. Confession isn't about shaming us. Confession is about acknowledging my brokenness and coming to Jesus again for healing and hope and reassurance. That's why, you know, some of us who grew up with the idea of penance, that's why it's so opposed to the gospel because penance is about imposing penalties to receive forgiveness. You did wrong, so here's what you must do in order to know that you are forgiven. Now, that's different from saying I need to make right what I may have done to someone. Forgiveness, though, does not come from God because we do something except cling to Christ. 
because it's about what Jesus has done. The idea that we must do something to deserve God's grace, to release God's grace, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying does not work. Religious rituals and performance can never take away sin, but Jesus does, and Jesus has. And maybe sometimes, even as followers of Jesus, it's hard for us to believe that, to believe that our sins really do not exist before God. We can feel like we need to be really, really sorry, and then I can know I'm forgiven. We need to apologize over and over and over, or, or I need to do better. I need to be better. Once I, you know, I take some steps of obedience and I, and I can do a better job the next time, then I can really feel like I'm forgiven. Your sins are taken away in Christ. Sin is not your master, but only through Christ. Only by his work on the cross, which I receive by faith alone. And that gives us a greater hope. Oh, a greater hope. Than all the law and the shadow and the promises. Than all the sacrifices of the good works. Because it's a hope, not just that God would overlook our sins, but that they are gone. Do you believe that? Do you know that that's true of you in Christ? Hope that Jesus has fulfilled the law for me because I can't. Hope that God would actually come to live in me and help me to be what I ought to be and do what I was created to do. Hope that Jesus will return and finally make me and everything else the way it ought to be. I started out by kind of teasing you all with the, the picture of this meal that uh, we enjoyed the other night satisfying, delicious, beautiful, a, a picture really of love and thoughtfulness and generosity and sacrifice and goodness and joy and blessing and wholeness and, and a community, a community to share it with. That's the hope of Christ. That's what he's called us to. That's what he wants for us. That's what he's created you for. What hope does is it, it changes us over and over again. Because see, the law could command, make a meal for other people. It could give you the recipe. But it can't make you do it in love. It can't make it an offering of joy and blessing. But because our sins are taken away in Christ, we actually can be and do those things. Jesus makes us into people who live in that kind of hope. What kind of a community would that look like when we live in that kind of hope? We are freed now in Christ to forgive as we have been forgiven. So in a weird way, the more that we see our sin, if we're taking it to Christ, the more alive we become and the more free we become because the more honest we're becoming. And we're drawing closer to Christ. So we start to forgive people with the depth of forgiveness that we know we need and we have received in Jesus. Jesus makes it safe for us to acknowledge our sins, our wrongs, not just to him, but to each other. 
Because we'd be a community of people who know that we are not under law, but grace. We live out a hope that reflects the greater good, the good things that God has for us in Christ. We'd, we'd show more patience. We'd show more kindness and empathy and understanding. We, we'd be less quick to dismiss and disparage other people and their perspectives and experiences. We'd be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to forgive and listen. We'd, we'd want to be people who would reflect God's greater things to our family and our neighborhood and our community. And, and we'd grow to be a community of people who are deeply attractive that the world can't make sense of because we don't fit into any boxes. We're honest about our sins because they don't define us and they don't destroy us. And we're actually growing to look more like Jesus who is light and life and hope. Oh, let's be people of that kind of hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much in your amazing mercy and your infinite wisdom at just the right time. You sent your son to do what the law could not do and what we could not do. And that in Jesus, we start to see the fulfillment of all the good things you have for us. That there will be an end to violence and greed and lust and injustice that there will be an end to selfishness and the love of comfort and gossip and slander and pride and envy and idolatry. That there will be an end to mockery of what is good and the love of what is foolish. That it will not go on forever and you have come to set us free and this world is marching towards an end where Jesus will rule and reign so that we can now live in hope. You make it safe for us to acknowledge we have been unfaithful to you. We often choose to be far from you. We have broken every one of your laws. But we are not afraid because grace has drawn us near to you and paid for our unfaithfulness and made us clean in your eyes. Help us to live as people of that hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.